Hey guys, welcome back to the 3 to 7 podcast. I hope you're ready for episode number two, or part two, with our brother Chris Reckliff. Um, If you haven't listened to part one, go back and check it out. It is uh, episode 103, The Man in the Arena with Chris Reckliff. This is part two as we dig into Chris's uh, experience in a highly specialized unit that uh, he was he actually became the OIC of this unit within the LAPD man you want to talk about some serious missions some serious uh, uh, assaults that these guys went on I mean just stand by for some awesome stories yeah here it is and uh, I wanted to take just a second to make mention of the group that we have, the body that meets every three Sundays or every well, three Sundays out of every month for Resurrected. Uh, I woke up at 3.30 this morning just thinking about this group, this vision that has come to life that is Resurrected, and it's just, it, it's absolutely amazing to me what is happening. I'm just filled with joy when we have, last night we had 40 people live on the call and everyone is interacting, is contributing equally with their gifts, their talents, their testimonies. And uh, I'm just so thankful for it, man. And so I wanted to make mention of that if you guys want to join us on Resurrected, uh, go and sign up on Patreon, which is a platform that we use, that we offer to people that want to support the podcast, but we also do our best to uh, provide exclusive content there for the people that invest their hard-earned money into this show. Um, the money that we get from Patreon allows us to do a lot of things. It allows us to pay for the guests that we have on. It allows us to pay for their travel expenses, their hotel rooms. Um, it allows us to buy equipment that we need. It allows us to pay for uh, editing, uh, video editing on our show. It just, man, it, it makes the make takes the show to a whole nother level. So. Any of you guys that support us on Patreon on whatever level, whether it's $5 a month or $25 a month, uh, we just cannot thank you enough because you guys are the ones that allow this show not only to happen, uh, you carry the load for everyone, the thousands and thousands of people that listen to this. You guys that support us on Patreon, you carry the load for everyone and allow us to put out the best possible product that we can for you guys. So, thank you so much. We love you guys. Hope you enjoy this part two with Chris Reckliff. Without further ado, here it is. That forever changed my career, going to that unit. Uh, I was there the last 10 years, 11 years of my career. Yeah. Um. Had and so I, that's that's going to be that's you're talking about nine, you're talking about this is like the tier one asset, 
right, of the LAPD at this point. Correct. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a task force that was implemented by Agent Scott Garriola. He's been retired two or three years. Uh, you Google his name, you'll see him. Mm-hmm. He's got a very high profile catalog of arrests mm-hmm. and accomplishments. He's very well known throughout the Bureau, FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, phenomenal friend and mentor to me. Um, and uh, I was blessed that I had the opportunity to work around a guy like him. He's basically a legend in the FBI. Yeah. Um, so I get there. And again, for the LAPD side, the majority are almost 20, if not at least 20 year veterans at this point. Everybody's locked on, squared away, nine LAPD detectives, three FBI agents. And that unit, all they do is high profile, the most violent suspects there are. Primary mission is murder suspects, then attempt murder suspects and armed robbery suspects, meaning attempt murder suspect, you shoot somebody, but they happen to live. Yeah. You know, it's attempt murder, armed robbery cases and rapes. So you're dealing with violent criminals. Correct. Which are HVI, high value individuals on that on that public offender list. There you go. Yeah. These people got nothing to lose, I imagine. A lot of them. Correct. And yeah. it's not only the ones that are wanted um, for murder in LA, but so we network throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So say there's a murder suspect in Chicago and those homicide detectives there identify him and believe he fled to LA because he's got family ties. They don't come out here and try to find him in LA. They call us, yeah, and vice versa. If someone kills a, a, a someone in Los Angeles and flees to Vegas, those homicide detectives call Vegas, yeah, and Vegas has an FBI fugitive task force. So we network with all the the task forces uh, throughout the country because the way uh, J. Edgar Hoover set up the bureau was he wanted to, he wanted it situated throughout the country that an FBI agent can get to anywhere within two hours Mm -hmm. in the country that's the way they deployed so it's a good network connection we have so not only are we arresting suspects that are wanted for murder attempt murder rape armed robbery shootings in la we're also hunting if you will that's the word i use we're hunting suspects that are wanted from other states that fled to hide in la yeah um some people just may have a hard time grasping this number, but I did an audit the last five years. I was running a unit. I was fortunate enough to be promoted and put in position of OIC of the unit for several years. And um, I did an audit for the last five years, and we averaged 90 murder suspects a year. So if you really think about it, that's almost two murder suspects per week Yeah, we're doing. Um, that's, a, that's a high op tempo right there, brother. High op, high uh, stressful, high workload, a lot of overtime. Now, would um, you guys generate your? Did you guys have like a team to generate intel packages on these individuals, or were, what? What? What was your role and responsibility? Sure, we we were that team. So you were gathering intel and doing the hit. Correct. Doing the assault. So what? What will happen is there's 21 geographical divisions throughout Los Angeles Police Department. 21 patrol slash detective divisions. Each of those divisions has a uh, homicide table, a robbery table. So homicide will get a, a case. They'll identify the suspect. They'll call us. And they'll say, hey, Chris, we had this murder, and 
Um, here, here's all his info on a suspect. Go find him. Okay. We got a warrant in the system. Sometimes they don't have a warrant in the system. They do that for strategic reasons, but we still go on the hunt for him. We're just going to arrest him on the probable cause. You don't necessarily need a warrant in the system. Yeah. So we get the case. We'll assign it to one of the the nine of us LAPD because it's they're LAPD cases. Um, the FBI agents just help us because the FBI is bringing money. They're bringing certain surveillance techniques, if you will, yeah, to help locate people. Mm-hmm. Technology. Technology. Yeah. Uh, there's only so much I could say, obviously. Um, but one of the nine of us would get the case, and we'd assign it to somebody, and we have certain uh, access to certain computer um, t- um, software to assist us in locating people. We'll do our work up, and that'll consist of, obviously, numerous hours of surveillance. Um, and then ultimately, when we you know locate the suspect, the actual physical takedown of the yeah. suspect. And to to do something like that high end, you need calm, cool, collected people, like-minded focus. And we in in turn, we do a lot of training. Yeah. To be able to be sharp um on that. Um so that is where I spent the last decade plus of my career and had some crazy, crazy cases. I, I know, Chris, and you guys, I mean, you talk about HVI. You guys took down some high-value targets, man. Um, I remember you telling the story uh, out on the basic course of, a, of an individual you, you guys took down. Uh, what was his name, Whitey? I, I remember Whitey. Yeah, so the, the unit, uh, so James Whitey Bolger, was yeah. a uh, the crime boss in in Boston, and there's a movie about this, right? Yeah, it's called Black Mass with Johnny Depp. I gotta watch that, man. Yeah, so so James uh, Whitey Bulger, he went by Whitey Bulger. Um, he was actually on the FBI's most wanted list uh, in the top ten, right? Osama bin Laden was number one, mm-hmm. and then when the Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden, James Whitey Bulger got bumped up to number one. So James was, I think it was about 19, he was getting indicted. What happened with James was he had befriended an FBI agent. And the FBI agent dimed him off and said, hey, they're about to indict you on a RICO statute with like racketeering, 19 murders, a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. He dimed off Whitey. Whitey hit the road with his his, uh, girlfriend, Catherine, and they flee. They flee the Boston area. That that crooked FBI agent got arrested and was sent to prison, obviously rightfully so. Yeah. So Whitey's on the loose for 16 years. And during that 16 years, so, you know, he was basically the crime boss, like you would think of like the Gambino crime family in New York, except it's Boston, okay? He goes on the run, and during that 16 years, there's tips coming in all over the world, sightings of Whitey in Europe. Citing Whitey in Asia, you know, and the FBI's following it up. I mean, this guy's number one, man. (laughs) So they bump him up to number one, and the FBI did a very smart thing. They they decided to take the focus of looking for him, and they started to say, "Let's let's focus on the girlfriend Catherine that he fled with." So by this time, you got sixteen years went by. Is the last time they had a photo of these two. So the FBI did their age progression to get, you know, what they may look like today. Um, 
and they put it out there. And then one day the unit's working, we're going, you know, going in to watch, and a, a call comes in to the FBI agent, Scott Gariola, to say hey, a tip came in. Uh, someone said that they believe this couple is a elderly couple because now by now Whitey is in his seventies, right? Um, is living in Santa Monica, California, which is a beach community in LA County, right? And it's end of watch. You know how guys are at end of watch. They just want to go home. You know, what do you mean? We got to stick around and work overtime. It's not going to be Whitey Bulger. Why yeah. Do, why do we got to drive in traffic and rush hour to <laughs> the west side to Santa Monica? It's not. There's no way. Santa Monica's not uh, hosting Whitey Bulger. This and guy's hiding in plain sight, man. And that's exactly what he did. So before we get to the arrest, what, what he did was he got here and he basically I obtained a new identity um, by finding a lookalike, paying a, a someone on Venice Boulevard to, you know, a, a basically a, a drunk transient for his ID. And he had, he basically assumed that identity. Yeah. And he's living in this apartment building. We, we still don't believe it's him. Right. So they set up and one of the guys on, on point, he's on point and all you could see is a balcony. You know, Scott Gariola had went in, got a lay of the land without making contact with the manager or anything. We got a tip. The tip said what apartment they believed this couple who they believed was Whitey and Catherine were living in. What apartment? So Agent Gariola goes up out on foot, undercover capacity, marks the door, comes down, says, hey, it'll be this balcony on this corner, this side, you know, side of the building, right? So one of the operators sets up on point. And comes on our surveillance frequency. Says, "Hey, man, an older lady came out. Look, looks like the the sketch. Mm-hmm. I think it might be Catherine. You know." And everyone in the unit's like, "No way, no way." So you know, Scott Gariola, Agent Gariola, goes in, meets with the manager, identifies him. Says, "Hey, we got living in that apartment. Oh, you know, this nice elderly couple. How long they been here? You know, Fifteen, sixteen years." And he's like. You know, how, how do they pay? Oh, they pay cash every month. Hmm. What are their names? And of course, it's different names. Yeah. But, you know, the cash paying rent is one thing. You know, that's like a little clue. And um, he's like, do they have an accent or anything? And the manager's like, yeah, come to think about it. I think they're from New York or something. They have like an East Coast accent. So Agent Gary is thinking, hey, this might be them. But now all that's. All the unit's seen is the female come to the balcony. Yeah. No one knows if Whitey's still inside, right, with her, or if it's even her. So a ruse is devised, and a call gets stiffed in to the apartment, and a female answers. And basically, I can't give the ruse away only because of the non-disclosure that I signed. Yeah. Uh, But a ruse is used, and we do what we call... A Trojan horse where we stack a couple people in one vehicle and we park it kind of close to their carport. Um, and and now everybody's not so pissed about working overtime, right? Right. But the, the, the vibe is there's no way this is the famous James Whitey Bulger, number one FBI most wanted, right? <laughs> this is going to be a poor old lady or man come down and get guns pointed at him and give him a heart attack, right? <laughs> so, so, <clears throat> Call gets up, uh, gets put in to the apartment. 
elderly female, so we believe it's the one that came out to the balcony, uh, answers the phone. So, you know, the vibe is, was hoping it was going to be a male voice, elderly male voice, yeah. right? So the ruse is used to lure him to come out. And several minutes later, here comes this 70-something-year-old white male, white pants, white shirt, white cap, walking down towards his car in the carport where the unit staged, jump out, guns are pointed at him. And telling him to get down on his knees, you know, we're going to, what we call prone out. Yeah. You know, we do that to all our murder suspects, regardless of age. You got a guy wanted for 19 murders. I don't care how old you are. You're getting down on the ground, right? Guy's got nothing to lose, man. Right. So orders are being told to get down on the ground and trying to say this without saying the bad words, because I don't say bad words, but he looks and he tells uh, Agent Gary O, he goes, I'm not getting down on my freaking knees, except the, yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, so Agent Gary O goes, what's your name? And he goes, you know who the F I am. And at that point, Agent Gary O just walked up and handcuffed him. And uh, so he was hardcore to the end. He, he was not going to get down. He wasn't going to listen to us. Yeah. So just walked up. Agent Gary O handcuffs him, says, hey, we need to go into your apartment. He's like, hey, Catherine's going to be cooperative. No worries. You got any weapons in there? Yeah, I got about 30 guns uh, hidden in there. I got money in the wall. He had like $750,000 or so hidden in the wall. He'd been there for 16 years. Gosh, so man. he had, you know, he, he was super, at that point, he was super cooperative. <clears throat> and then uh, he ultimately got extradited back to Boston for trial, uh, got sentenced to life for multiple, I think it was like life in five years or something. Yeah. And uh, he did a couple years in prison, and then he got transferred to another federal prison. And his first day there, he got whacked. Did he really? Yeah, wow, he got man. whacked a few years ago. Uh, he got whacked by a gangster who the belief is was angry that Whitey was working in concert with that corrupt FBI agent. That, that, that younger gangster's philosophy was, you don't talk to anybody in law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. So was it a coincidence that Whitey gets transferred after several years to a new prison and that very first day he gets whacked? Some, That's some deep stuff, brother. Somebody knew he was coming. That's some deep stuff, man. Yeah. Um, did you guys as a unit, I mean, you guys just did a, a raid basically and took down the number one dude on the FBI's most wanted list. Did you, did you guys receive any accolades for that? I mean, what was ha what what happened after that for for you guys? You know, the the unit and the the personalities in it, they're not looking for accolades at all. That's what I figured. At all. It's just you're on to the next case. Yeah. Don't once that case is over, you shelve it, follow the case package, you're on cuz again, averaging nine, and and when I say we average 90 murder suspects a year arresting, that's not the total number of arrests a year because we're still arresting armed robbery suspects, yeah. bank robbery suspects, attempt murder suspects, and rapists. We're, we're arresting like 130 people a year. So nobody's patting themselves on the back or anything. It's on to the next case. You guys are professionals. It just is who you – it is who you are. It is what you do. Right. Yeah. Um. 
you know, I know you've I know you've uh, shared with us some um, some of the things that you guys have encountered in in and I think it's uh you know not not that we're on here to tell uh to tell war stories, but I, I think it's really interesting to me to think that you guys got in situations where you guys actually got in firefights where guys were guys were shot. Yes. And 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 you know it was it, I could not imagine getting in a firefight in the United States like on a on a on a street here in the like you just it, to me it seems it just seems like what the crap like how would that feel when you're when you're deployed overseas you expect it like you're go, you'd be disappointed if it doesn't happen um because that's what you're going there for man but i mean the first firefight you got in here in the states as a as a a, a special operations law enforcement officer. I know that's not your technical title, but that's what I'm going to call you. What did that feel like, dude? I mean, was that, I mean, what? Well, I, I mean, without telling too many stories, because, yeah. you know, I don't want to sit here all night. Uh, well, I would yeah, like we, to, got, we can split this into two parts <laughs> if we need to, man. Um, I would like to talk about one, and, and I mm -hmm. think it's, you know, I've never been that guy, and no one in the unit is um, that type of cop that sits around telling war stories. That's just not who we are, but I think this one has some, some lessons that hopefully anyone listening to this, this is why I want to tell, yeah, tell brother. it. Um, it has a lot of, um, I believe critical teachings and learning points that regardless of your profession, uh, regardless of your faith or belief, you can take something away from this. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, mm -hmm. um, owning up to mistakes, um, etc. So we were we were called by um, Newton Homicide. That's one of our 21 geographical divisions. Um, this is in South Central Los Angeles. We get a phone call. It says, hey, uh, got a murder suspect. Can you guys come down? We'll brief you on it. And that's usually what we would do. We would send one of the FBI agents. In this case, it was Agent Gariola. And uh, Jason gave me his permission to use his name. Jason Lycom greatest partner, second greatest partner I ever had. Sorry, Jason, but Michael Henderson will always be my brother. Uh, you're my second brother. Uh, it's like Pete being my forever swim buddy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. But um, so they go down, they meet, and they get the story. And the story is this 68-year-old man, never been arrested in his life, okay? So we're, we're, we're getting the whole background on this. So Homicide will give us the background, but we still go and do our independent work up on the suspect mm -hmm. you don't just take some other even though it's a homicide detective we still start from scratch you may tell me his driver's license number his address and where you think he's at in the car he's driving we're still going to do our independent investigation yeah so the 68 year old man he's renting property from family he's subletting a house on property right for whatever reason the family members are evicting him so the suspect himself, the 68-year-old man, calls the police. Patrol officers do a phenomenal job responding. Phenomenal job. They get there, and he's basically telling them, hey, my two relatives here, they're kicking me out of the house I've been renting for years. I have squatter's rights. I have renter's rights. They can't do that. Officers do a phenomenal job. 
Uh, they're there about 45 minutes, and they say, no, sir, this is the law. You have to leave. You have to pack up your stuff and leave. So they wait till he packs up his stuff, packs up his car, and he leaves. Um, they stick around for a little bit with family there, and then the patrol officers leave. An hour later, the suspect, again, 68-year-old man, they wait till he packs up his car, all his belongings, and they make sure he's gone. Yeah. Officers stick around for a little while longer. Again, they did a phenomenal job, the, the responding patrol officers to the radio call. They ultimately leave. About an hour later, this suspect comes back and lies in wait. And as his two relatives come out, two adult males, he takes two headshots with a four-inch revolver from 30 yards and drops both of them. Kills one, critically wounds the other. This is family he's doing this to. Gosh, and this is a guy that's never been arrested, and you're 68 years old. So he um, he then flees in his car. So ultimately, the homicide detectives get there. They process the scene. They identify who the suspect is, and they call us because they know they always use us to go find these murder suspects. So Jason Lycom is one of our, our uh, operators. He takes the lead on the case, and for about a week, he's working up the case, Okay doing all the assets that the FBI brings and our department resources that we have to help locate people. About a week later, we're scheduled to do two murder search warrants in the Valley, North Los Angeles. So it's, we, we started at five that morning and I, um, this is August 7th, 2018. And I'm at my desk and I'm reviewing. So when we do a search warrant, uh, I, we have what's called a tactical operations plan. And when we do a surveillance operation, it's called an operations plan. So I'm reviewing two tactical search warrant operation plans for two locations. We're going to be hitting for murder suspects in the Valley. So that's where I call this mindset. Cause I ultimately in the end, the department had me teach this class called mindset and on this debrief incident, whereas everybody's head was at. So my mindset at now six o'clock in the morning is reviewing these before I send them up to chain of command to get blessing for us to go hit these search warrants later that afternoon. And I send the two guys out there to do their recon on the two pads. We're going to hit two guys from the team. Meanwhile, Jason Lycom comes over to me. He goes, Hey boss, I got some Intel that, you know, that 68 year old murder suspect that killed one of his family members, gravely wounded the other with the mm -hmm. two headshots, maybe in this area. South Central. You mind if I take two of the guys and just scout? I said, you know, Roger that. I said, just make sure if you come across anything good, don't set up on it because there's only three of you. That violates our protocol and our procedures. Um, you know, just make notifications to the division watch commander that you're in that area because we're all undercover and undercover cars. And if you happen to see him, don't take action. You know, if he gets in a car, do a following. Put it out over the divisional broadcast that you're following a murder suspect, et cetera. Let patrol get behind. Okay. So he goes, Roger that, boss. Um, I promise I'm not going to do anything. We're just going to head out there, you know, kind of search the area, see if we can get lucky. Because we knew the suspect had a car. So I'm in the office reviewing these plans for later search warrant operations. So that's where my head's at. Yeah. And my phone rings about an hour later, and it's Jason. He goes, hey, boss, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, you found the car. He's like, yeah, man, it's at this hotel at 41st and Central Avenue. 
in South Central. He said, all right, where is it parked? It's parked inside a small parking lot, a small hotel, small little two-story rundown hotel. Roger that. I said, don't set up on a car. Keep a, lo- a long eye on it. You, I'll start sending guys your way. So prior to kicking them off, we always brief. We brief, even though everyone knows the case, we rebrief. It's a new day. Yeah. So as a unit in the office, before those three went out, we briefed again. Then those three kicked off. I said, just keep a long eye on the car. Make notifications to communications. Um, let them know you're in the area. Make sure the divisional watch commander from the patrol division knows, et cetera. He starts making, and I said, start scratching the operation plan out. Opboard. So yeah. he's doing all that. I caused a pause on what I was focused on, which was approving these te- uh, tech plans for the search warrants. I walk over my lieutenant. Now, that here's where the mindsets of everybody starts coming in. I brief with all the guys, the remaining guys in the office. We rebrief on the case, even though we had just briefed before Jason and the two leave. We brief again, and I kick them. They know their assignments when they get there. Start picking up the wins, but nobody's take action yet. I walk over to my lieutenant's desk. It's my lieutenant's last day. He's an officer in the Army Reserve, and he had just gotten overseas orders. Where do you think his head was? Where do you think his mindset? His mindset wasn't. Oh, no, he's thinking about deployment, man. You got it. Yeah. I walk over to him, and I go, hey, boss, a couple things. Got this 68-year-old man, murder suspect, never been arrested, and you need to know something. And we got to keep this on the down low. He's the father of an LAPD officer. And I could tell my lieutenant's a phenomenal guy. He's since retired. Um, after he did that year deployment, he came back and then he retired. Um, I could tell what I was telling him was just in one ear, out the other yeah. ear. And of all the years I had been running the unit, I had never gotten like this weird feeling. Like there was something about this case that was bothering me. I think it was coupled the sixty-eight year old, never been arrested, and the fact obviously he took two headshots lying in wait at family members, and to top it off, he's the father of an LAPD officer. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my my lieutenant, and he's clearing out his desk, and I'm like, man, he didn't hear a word I said. And, and is, are you counting on him to go out on this op with you? He he they they never he never went out okay. on our ops. I would run a unit and. You know, that's just the way it was. Gotcha. I had already logged off my my computer. I walked back over to my desk. This is the only time I've ever done this for any case. True story. I power my computer back up. I wait till it boots up. I go into Word, and I type up a one-page synopsis. I've never done this before. I type up the, what we call a DR number. It's just a case number. Um, suspect's info, name, age, no rap sheet. Um the fact that he's a father of an OAPD officer, who that is with that officer's serial number, where that officer works, um, the circumstances of the case, um, the, the murder warrant number, all the things that I knew if this went sideways, the 10th floor is 10-story building, 10th floor is the chief's office, would be wanting, it would quench their, their thirst. That's right. If something bad happened. And I'd never done that before. All the hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of, of cases. I walked back over to lieutenant, my lieutenant. I said, hey, boss, here, here's this flyer I typed up. 
with all the bullet points that will quench the thirst of the 10th floor if something goes sideways. I got a bad feeling. I've never had that feeling before. Done so many murder cases and high-profile murder cases. Never had a bad feeling. Something, I can't explain it. Did that get his attention? <laughs> it did. He's like, Roger that, thanks. But you'll find out later that it didn't. Yeah. Um, so I go out there, I meet with the guys, and now we have we use Nextels. We have a FBI surveillance frequency we use. We have the division we're on, which is Newton Division, LAPD, patrol area. So I got that base frequency on, and we get a group text thread. I meet with Jason, and Jason hands me the op plan. And I look at it, and he's got an order of everybody. You know, I'm team leader. It's my op. Um, he's got one of our operators. I'm not going to say his name because he's still operating. But that per he has him on point and, um, for the stick, for the takedown. Yeah. Not point like in the car for surveillance. That was somebody else. So he has the assignments for when we actually jump out and do a takedown. And he's got this guy and that officer, or that detective rather, had just, he had gotten in a, a, sh a gun battle, the unit did, and he was a shooter um, and dropped a murder suspect who had murdered his estranged wife, kidnapped his kid from San Mateo, California, came down here, and he was loading up in an Uber, and one of the operators dropped him. Um, there's a whole other story to that, too, but um, I want to focus on this one story. So I saw him, and I'm like, I'm doing a disservice if I put him. I had this bad feeling that this was going to go sideways. Yeah. And I can't, I don't have a reason or, or any explanation why I had a bad feeling. I just did. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing there to necessarily prompt you that this was going to be any different than any other thing that you guys have done. Right. And I'm like, man, yesterday, it, the final findings of his shooting from almost a year ago, finally came back all in policy. Everything's good. And I'm like, I think this is going to go bad. And I don't want this same operator being the first one to make contact. Yeah. So I changed the lineup, and I said, "Jason, you're on. You're on point. You're going to be with the Benelli semi-auto shotgun." Um, so if people don't know that um, or are familiar with that, a Benelli M4, it's it's a semi-auto shotgun, meaning you're not racking it. Yeah. Right. So you just press the trigger, just like a like a pistol. Each time you press it, sh a shotgun blast is going to come out, and you got five in the tube. I said you're going to be on point. So we're gonna, I'm going to swap you. What rounds would you have in that Benelli? Sorry, I have to ask. Um, he had, they were federal and... Buckshot? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were buck. He didn't have, he did not load any slugs. Okay. We have slugs that you could, you know, skip load or you, if you have a bad feeling or you know it's going to be a longer shot. Yeah. We had a feeling it's going to be close contact, so you don't need a slug. So... He had that loaded with his buck, Magnum, and uh, in, in two was another operator, position two, with his M4 carbine rifle. Then position three was another operator with pistol, but we have check boxes we have to make, Chad. Um, the department's big on less lethal options. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple of different less lethals. So I had him, he was a newer member of the team, but I put him in a critical role, which was the beanbag shotgun. Now, when you check that box, it's just to say we had it available. It was with us, right? 
and that's all it is. You you shoulder it with your your sling. Yeah. But you're gonna be with your pistol. Position four was the original operator whose shooting just came back the day before. I moved him from position one, put him in position four, and his was a second less lethal option, which was the taser. But he knows he keeps that in his taser holster. Yeah. And he's got his nineteen eleven out. But you still because of because of the bureaucracy, you've still significantly crippled your team in order to hit these wickets. Right. Yeah, because for you guys that don't understand, you take a pistol into a firefight, uh, it's much less effective than a M4 carbine or a shotgun loaded with buckshot. So. Correct. Yeah, and, that's tough, man. And then position five was uh, Agent Scott Gariola, and he was going to handcuff if all went well. Yeah. And then I was six as team leader. And I was always trained from all the SWAT training days uh, for, for an effective team leader, you should never have your gun out. Yeah, you don't need to you're, be on your gun. You're you're the orchestrator. Mm -hmm. You're the conductor. Uh, if you, whether it's a building search or whatever operator, if you as a team leader has to pull out your gun, you've done something wrong. You're not trusting your team. That's it, brother. You should be just standing there looking around, and and that's it. Same way and, in the SEAL teams, man. But, when we when we would train land warfare, right? Your your OIC would get one mag. Right. It had to last him all night. But, you know? but because our department wants to appease everybody, you know, I think it was Charles Webb had, had once made that famous quote that, you know, people want to sleep well at night and want police to do the dirty work. They just don't want to know how it's done. Because yeah. there is no, I think his quote was, there is no easy way to arrest a violent suspect. Yeah. Right? So... <clears throat> Our department has made it so politically correct with all these check boxes that now our operation plan is, you know, the more convoluted or detailed a plan has to be, the harder it is to follow out when the crap hits the fan. Yeah, you lose your fine motor skills it's, when that happens. It's yeah. very hard to follow your, everybody's. You may know what you're supposed to do, but because these plans have become so crazy in detail, because they want to account for every possible scenario. Yeah. It used to be the last, I was always taught by our force investigation division commander, Chris, in your uh, op plan, just always end it with tactics used to effective arrest, to effect arrest will ultimately be decided by the suspect's actions. Our department took the suspect's actions out of it. They don't care. It's our actions and our actions only. Yeah. They've made these TAC plans and op plans so convoluted, it's it's ridiculous. And you know, again, more detailed a plan is, the harder it is to carry out. To oh, me, it's yeah. the more streamlined and simple a plan is, everybody's on point and laser focused. Keep, keep it simple. Keep it stupid simple, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's critical, man. Exactly. Yeah. So what we do is we we're, everybody's finally set up. We send the plan up. We get a blessed by bureau. So we're out there, we're pushing around ideas. Behind the scenes, I'm making calls, you know, to the guy on point that's keeping an eye on the car parked in the um, inside the parking lot. We send our best UC operator, George Morales. Trust that man, hundreds of operations. Mm -hmm. Great, greatest UC undercover offer, uh, officer I've ever worked with. Normally, he'll go out on foot by himself. But for some reason, I had a bad feeling. And I said, hey, brother, I don't, he's, 
he's driving an undercover car, obviously. I said, I don't want you driving in a lot yourself and making contact. The goal was you're going to go in, scout it, and then make contact with the manager. Get a lay of the land, and then if you get a good vibe from the manager, ID yourself and see if the fact, just because the car is there doesn't mean the suspect's there, right? So I said, I don't want you going in with yourself. I want another operator. So I send uh, another operator, park your car, go in, and the two of you drive into the lot. He goes in, goes into the office, um, calls me from the office, hey, one manager here, super cooperative, not too many tenants. I think only four or five of the 20 apartments or 20 hotel rooms were yeah. filled, vacancy. And there's only two cars here in a parking lot, one of which is the suspect. Suspect's window is strategically positioned where his front window overlooks the courtyard and the front office and the back window overlooks the major street where we had an operator also on surveillance. It was like the suspect picked that room. So I said, George, George do doesn't need to be told this. He knows. I said, get a schematic of the area, lay a land. You know, you have it on Google Maps and aerial view, but draw me a schematic. Yeah. So he draws a schematic. Schematic. He comes out. Him and the partner come out. They drive out, and we talk on the phone because everybody's just laying low in their cars. And calls me up, and he goes, "Hey, Chris." He goes, "My, my. Here, here's the deal. Every day at eleven o'clock, the suspect comes out of the room. He's been there for a week since the murder. He comes out to the office, and he pays cash for another night's stay. He goes." And we knew we couldn't go up to the landing and knock on a door. And the manager wasn't sure if he was inside or not. So I said, all right, Roger that. We're going to hold surveillance. And I go, what, what's your thought? And he goes, I say we, we send me and the other operator back in my vehicle in the parking lot. And we'll have point. And we'll see him. If he's still in the room, if he comes out at 11 o'clock, comes down the stairs, I'll broadcast it to you guys. And to make entry into this parking lot, I call it an alcove. It was like a little tunnel. Yeah. Where it's so narrow that only one car could get in, meaning if a car is inside the parking lot of the hotel and is coming out and you go to go in, one has to back up to let the other in and out. That's mm -hmm. how narrow it is. And that'll come into play. Um, he goes, I say, send us back in. We'll act like we're doing some, you know, some construction, a little ruse in our undercover capacity and we'll keep eyes on him and I'll broadcast when he comes out <clears throat> and he goes, when he comes out and goes in to pay for, if he pays, you know, if he goes right to his car and he's not going to stay another night, you guys can jam him as he's coming out, take him down, Roger that. If he goes in to pay, we'll see him in the office. And when he comes out, he's going to be walking in a northern direction back to the stairwell to go up. And you guys, what I think is the best plan is when he's in that office, you guys deploy from your vehicles in your tech gear, wrap the corner in that alcove, you'll be in the shadows, and you'll be up in, against the wall, and he won't see you. So the last thing I did, I said, George, are you sure he's not going to see us? He goes, bro, he can't see you. There's no windows in the office. Mm -hmm. There's just a door, but the door faces north. You're going to be around a corner. He's already going to be there when you guys stack up in formation. And the plan was... When he comes out, we were going to fan out. And you had Jason making contact with his Benelli. Yeah. You had the second operator with his M4 rifle. And you have third with pistol, with shock, a beanbag shotgun is back up for less lethal. 
and the fourth operator with 1911 pistol uh, with taser as backup if the suspect's non-compliant. Yeah, you guys are going to get online, get your guns to bear. And we're going yeah. to get him right from behind, tell him to get down, right? If he goes for anything, we got all kinds of options. We got all the check boxes checked. I said, George, are you, are you sure he's not going to see us? Because I'm out here on the street, man, and, and I'm looking where the office is situated, and I'm, I'm looking at windows on the south side of the building facing the street. He goes, that, that's a back office, of this office when you walk in <clears throat> there's a counter with bandit barrier then there's a wall with a door mm -hmm. he can't see those windows he won't see you guys coming and wrapping in the alcove said roger that right on so <clears throat> sure as heck at 11 o'clock everybody knows their assignments everybody's good everybody's mind is on the objective now, we've been on surveillance since about 8 o'clock in the morning now. Jason had found a car a little after 7, made notifications. They had our phone numbers, our unit numbers, everything, both the patrol division and the base frequency radio operator, right, communications division. Yeah. So we're what's called code 5, which means we're on surveillance. When you actually get out of your car, you change from code 5 to what's called code 6, means you're out for investigation, like contact with suspect is imminent or potentially imminent. So sure as heck at 11 o'clock, I hear George. George is, you know, back in with the other operator in their undercover car in the parking lot. He goes, hey, door's open. Suspect's coming out, 100% suspect. He's coming down the stairs, doesn't have a care in the world, isn't looking around. You know, because that's another thing we look for. Is suspect tanked up? Is their head on a swivel, yeah. et cetera? He comes up and he slowly walks across the parking lot in a south direction into the office door. And George is like, hey, man. I see him giving cash. He's obviously staying for the night. And the plan was we told the <clears throat> clerk, the manager, he's the only one working there, when he pays the money and you do the transaction, you go back into your office and you hide. Just stay, lay low. Don't come back out. We'll come and get you when, it, when he's in custody. So everything was good. We had her safety was paramount. What's George doing in the office? Well, no, he wasn't there at that time. He okay. he he was uh, playing a role as, of construction at okay. that time. Okay, so he's just he's he's watching. He's on the grounds, but and he's got he's wired up. So in one ear, I've got the surveillance frequency yeah. or FBI radio. In my other ear, I have Newton Division frequency because mm -hmm. that's the closest patrol area we're, we're working within. So I have two different ear frequency pieces going on, and I'm hearing them in my my left ear saying. Suspect's out, 100% him. Mm -hmm. Not looking around. He's not hanked up. He's walking. He's in the office. He's paying the bill. He looks like he's staying for another night. I see him pulling out cash. He's like, all right, guys, deploy. So command's given. I give the command, all right, team, let's go. Everybody individually gets out of their uh, UC cars or undercover cars, fully tacked up, just tack vest and the weaponry that they've been in you know, position four, their assignment four. As we go into the alcove to get up, butt up against the wall in mm -hmm. formation and hide in the shadows till he comes back out and walks right in front of us and we're going to basically surprise the heck out of him. As we're rounding that corner, the radio, I change from code five to code six. I mean, we're not on surveillance, we're out. We're out of our vehicles and contact is imminent. So I put out, you know, 
my my call sign five king three six one. Show me code six one eighty seven suspect. Um, you know, and I name I name the the name of the hotel and the address that we're at. Even though we've been there for hours and they already know that. Mm-hmm. I'm just changing from code five to code six. Yeah. As I'm saying that, I hear the radio operator go, um, can you give us the address again? And I'm thinking, we've been here for hours. You know the address. As I'm now, ta- so I'm listening to two different things. I'm listening to her, the radio operator, and I give the address again. And as I'm saying that, and the stick is, the, the team is forming up, I hear Jason, who's on point, first in line. I hear him go, window, 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 back up. And I'm thinking, window? There's not supposed to be any windows. George missed the window on his recon. Mm. There was a small window, small little window. Um, and that, that becomes huge. So not wanting to make any sound, you know, Jason's like, back up, back up. He's, we're whispering. I walk back to the sidewalk and I'm talking into my radio, giving the, the address that they already had. As I walk back up to the team to get an idea where this window is, I hear the radio operator asking, uh, or I'm sorry, I hear a patrol officer saying, Hey, what'd they say the name of the hotel is? And then the radio operator comes back on and says, you know, 5King361, can you say the name of the hotel again? I'm thinking, we've been here for hours. You know the name of it. You're asking me this now? Right. (laughs) So I'm walking back. And as I walk back to the sidewalk, I whisper, say the name of the hotel again. And I'm hearing George in my ear. Okay, guys, you know, be ready. And what I always had a practice of or a habit of doing is, you know, sometimes your comms go out, right? Oh, yeah, comms suck. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wanting to make sure everybody knew what George, the picture George was painting to us. In case their comm went out, I want to go up and put my hand on everybody and say, hey, man, be ready. He's, you know, he's paying his bill. Just be ready. Well, as I go to do that, the newer uh, detective to the unit, who's in position three with the beanbag shotgun, he drops his flashlight and it echoes in the small little alcove Mm -hmm. that we're in. And Agent Gariola leans down, picks it up, puts it in his belt. All of a sudden, the the radio communications officer, she comes back on and asks me for another pertinent information. And I'm rolling my eyes like, are you kidding me? And as I go to talk or whisper, that same detective racks a beanbag round into the shotgun. Mm. Everybody knows the universal sound of a rack racking shotgun. And it's not like I could say, hey, don't do that. It's too late. It's too late. Yeah. Roger that. The position four operator who's got his 1911 out and he's in taser if he has to go to it leans forward and sarcastically goes, shh, like, dude, what are you doing, man? Yeah. You're making a racket here. Unbeknownst to us, the suspect hears the noise. Or when you mirror up the time that racking happens, here's another thing George had found out for us in his recon. Even though it was a shoddy hotel, we were going to be filmed on high-definition 4K video, 30 frames per second surveillance. And we were fine with that because we do everything right. Yeah. So there's video on us when that happens. 
and there's video inside the office where the suspect is. He had already paid the bill, and she goes to the back and hides, right? He hears a sound. He hears something because the moment that happens, he turns and he looks, and it's eerie when I watch it. And he's looking at the wall, and we're on the other side of that wall, but we don't know he's looking at it. Mm -hmm. He walks to his window, and the first thing he does is he looks north towards where his hotel door is. And as he's coming back around, you see him do this, and he catches Jason. He catches a glimpse. Whether We'll never know whether he caught his shoulder, but he, he, he knew we were there and we were compromised. Mm -hmm. And we don't know we're compromised. And, and you're stuck in an alcove. Yes. Yeah. And George doesn't catch that. George doesn't see that happen. Um, because he's got limited view through one door, a glass door where you know that leads into the office. George is doing his best to paint the picture. And he's like, all right, guys, suspect's coming out. I had just leaned up to everybody, put my hand on their shoulder, said, get ready, he's going to be coming out. Be ready, be ready. As I say that, for like the fourth time, the radio communications officer comes on and she goes, 5King361, can I get your phone number? And I'm thinking... My phone record, my phone number's been on, on file with you guys since we've been on surveillance. I stand there and I whisper. I click my mic and I go 818, which is my area code. As I'm doing that, George is going, suspect's coming out, be ready. George doesn't see him. What he does is, as soon as he sees us in the window, the suspect, pulls out his gun, opens the door, we think he's coming out and just going to walk yeah. back towards his door. You think you still got the drop on him at this point? Yeah. He comes out a-blazing. So he's less than six feet from Jason. He's like four feet from Jason. And he fires the first round as Jason sees him and is coming up with his Benelli. And the first round hits him dead in his surefire um, light and explodes his light. To me, that's Jason getting shot. Yeah. Second round hits our second guy who's coming up with his rifle and hits him in the arm, drops his arm, his finger hits the trigger as he's trying to shoot, yep. and he sprays a couple of rounds. But a lot of them went low because that round fractures his wrist. The bullet splits in four. Two come out the top of the forearm. Two come out the other end, mm -hmm. you know, the bottom of the inside of the forearm. Suspect gets a third round off. Goes past our heads. Hits the other side of the alcove behind us. Four J feet. Four to six feet. Four to six feet. Wow. Boom, boom, boom. He's blasting. First two hits the first two guys. Jason did the most heroic thing out of my entire career I've ever seen. He shoots, and we know this because of the high-definition camera we're being filmed, 30 frames per second. He shoots five shotgun rounds in one second on the move he starts pieing to his left to draw the suspect away from us because mm -hmm. the suspect's shooting at the team so he selfishly puts himself out in the open in harm's way to do a one-on-one -on -one with the suspect selflessly yeah he he saved all our lives that day yeah 100 percent. he shoots five rounds and we're taught, and you're you, when you go in the heat of battle, you resort to training. When you run, run dry on a shoulder weapon, you drop it, it's slung, 
and you transition, transition. your pistol. He transitions to his 1911 and does two controlled shots. As this is going down, the second guy with the rifle who got blasted in the wrist, uh, he turns to me and he's looking at me with a blank stare. And I go, bro, you got hit. It's obvious. Blood's all over his hand. Yeah. And I look down and there's blood on his jeans. I go, bro, you take one in the leg too? And he's not responding. So I pull him out of the gunfight. And the third guy, you know, he's making up for a mistake of racking it. He, does, he went, he got his mindset right back on it. And he goes, does what he's trained to do. If the guy in front of you goes down, you step over, around, and you, you start laying down fire. So imagine an alcove, unless you were there, you know how loud gunfire is. Yeah. It's magnified in a little alcove. There's smoke everywhere. Ears are blown out. You got rifle rounds going off. You got shotgun rounds. You got revolver rounds going off all in seconds. Everybody's ears are blasted. I pull Mike away, the officer that got shot. I say, hey, bro, you got to sit down, man. Just sit down for me. He's not responding. He had already gone into a little bit of shock. Yeah. And I said, brother, just just sit down. Stay here. The, th the third position rounded the corner and laid down cover fire because he's rounding that corner blindly at this point. He just yeah. knows Jason's out there hung out to dry shooting, and he's got to get with his buddy, man, and protect him. And he does the right thing, man. Heroically rounds that corner, lays down fire. Takes care of business. Um, I go to broadcast. You know, I got to put out officers need help. I got an officer that's been hit. I go to key my mic. You, you, you don't think I got some adrenaline running through my body, right? But what good is it going to be if I, we've all heard people key mics and scream into that radio. Oh, yeah. Doesn't work too well, does it? No. So I key my mic and as, I take a breath and as calmly as I can say it, five king, three, six, one, shots fired. Officer needs help. I've got an officer that need, uh, that's been hit. I need an RA unit ASAP. I find out later, because I put that over to the patrol division frequency, that the guys on patrol, they know who we are. Our unit's got a reputation. They actually thought we were, oh, so when I kick, click my mic to give my phone number yeah. when the shooting starts, you actually hear the first rounds going off before I, you know, let go of the mic. Yeah. I'm like, oh, we're in a gun battle. And I'm looking around, making sure everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. I never once go for my gun because everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. Well, patrol officers and detectives in the detective squadron, they actually thought we were on the range training and practicing because they heard gunfire, mm -hmm. but they heard the way I was talking. They thought, oh, look at those fools. They're on the range and they're running a drill. Wow, man. And... They, they're on the wrong frequency. They're supposed to be on the training frequency, but here they are on the patrol base frequency. And then it dawned on them, oh, no, this this is real. They're, they're getting shot at. Yeah. So, you know, now lights and sirens are coming, and suspect's down. Fourth operator comes around. Um, I'm tending to the, you know, wounded operator. Uh, I put out the help call. Fire department's not going to come in a, a hot zone. And the communications officer comes on, hey, is the hot zone clear for RA unit, rescue ambulance unit to come in? Before I can cl click on it, a patrol officer, again, they're just trying to help out. They're, they're screaming lights and siren to get there. Yeah. <clears throat> they One of them gets on and says, yeah, Roger that. It's clear. They can come in. 
not knowing, no, we still have a hotel room. We don't know if he's got a friend that's helping him hide out. Mm -hmm. We know he's got three guns registered to him. We know we were being shot out with one. but We know there's at least two guns in there and there might be somebody else. So it's not the hot zone isn't clear. We got to get people up there and clear the room first. So I go over, I, you know, I get on the radio. I says the hot zone is not clear. And they go, okay, well, the ambulance will be waiting, coming and staying on the main you know, street, which is Central Avenue. I walk over to, to the operator that got shot in the arm. I said, bro, man, can you stand up for me? And he goes, I'll try. So me and one of the operators basically assist him, and we walk him about a quarter of a block to one of our surveillance vans that were there, uh, open up the side door, sit him in it, and that one operator stays with him until the ambulance gets there. We now, are you guys, have you guys applied tourniquet, anything, or is, he, is his bleeding slowed down enough to it, where you guys feel comfortable with where he's at? Or I left that, I'm the team leader, so I got to get back to the team. Yeah, yeah. So I left that to that that operator. Did you and, guys and have a medic on the team? We do. Okay. Yeah, we, we have a medic, and th that medic carries the full medic gear. Yeah. But he was the second shooter in that event, so he was out of play. But all of us carry tourniquets. We carry a dead center on our, our vests. Yeah. So either arm can grab it. Because yep. most cases, you got to apply it yourself. Mm -hmm. That's just what you know statistics show. So it's not a good having it in your back. It's not a good spot. Yeah. So I get back to the scene. They're cuffing the suspect. Uh, we're securing, you know, we see the murder uh, weapon is there, uh, the revolver. And I'm, I'm checking on everybody. You good, you good, you good. And I could see some of the shock on some of the guys' faces. Oh, like, I can't believe this just happened, man. This guy got the draw on us, man. Yeah. And came out blasting. And again, I had a weird feeling about this before I even left the office. Again, that was the first time I ever typed up that form. And it came in handy because you got officers shot and the chief's office wants to know what's going on out there. Who was it? Who's hit? Et cetera. Ambulance comes, transports that officer. They immediately put him in surgery. Uh, he never got hit in the in the leg. Uh, you know, we ripped off his pants. You know, they're, they're doing a triage, and that was blood that was from the wrist. Yeah, that was on there. But you know how it is. You got to pull off all the gear, all the clothes, and and check for other bullet holes. Bullets do weird things too. They sure do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> any of those fragments could have traveled through and pierced the heart. Um, so I get back to the scene. We secure and clear the hotel room, and then, you know, ultimately, the, the hot zone is clear, and now we have what's called our force investigation division that comes out and handles shootings. Everybody gets separated, uh, and about 12, year, uh, 12 hours later, I'm in an interview room getting interviewed, and I have to set the stage because I was the officer in charge. I have to go start to finish what it was all about. Um, we have this thing called a public safety statement that you're supposed to give out uh, if a shooting, like, hey, you talk, you, you, you separate the shooters. Uh, as responding supervisors from the patrol division comes, you assign one to basically babysit and monitor because we're not allowed to talk, can't compare notes, any of that. But what you have to do is the team leader, you have to go, hey, did you shoot? Even though you're there and you see it, you have to confirm. Did you shoot? Yeah, did you shoot? No. All right. Um, I don't need to know normally there's seven questions you got to ask, like how many rounds do you think you shot? What direction? And what that is, is that's for, it's called a public safety statement. 
that's if in case there's any flying rounds downrange down a neighborhood yeah. sidewalk, they want to be able to canvas and see if a bullet went through a window and killed somebody in their house. Yeah, you right? got to account for every one of those. Yeah, a absolutely. I didn't have to answer, uh, ask all those questions because I was there. I didn't have to ask them, hey, what direction were you shooting? I was watching it or how many rounds. I was there. I heard all the rounds. So it was limited. But I still had to explain when the force investigation division got there why I didn't ask all those questions. There's accountability. Yep. And, you know, and I, I know how to explain all those. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. So ultimately, it's about 12 hours later. Everybody, one by one, gets interviewed. I have to set the stage, what the game plan was, um, and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, one of the questions is, you know, did, did you, we heard you ask for an RA unit, a rescue ambulance unit for the down officer. Did you uh, ask, request one for the suspect? That's big for our department. I go, no, I did not. And they're like, why not? I go, because he was dead. You know, they didn't like that, but that's just the way I speak. Because yeah. I was furious that this guy, because we're going to get back into mindset, because I don't want to talk too much about a war story. Uh, I think this is the part for, for every for listeners right here. So I focus on this on mindset for a couple reasons. So one, this suspect in that office is a father of an LAPD officer. When we went up to the hotel room, on the nightstand was a picture of his son who graduated the police academy. When he saw the police were out there to apprehend him, he had options. He could have stayed in there and committed suicide. He could have stayed in that office and barricaded himself. He could have came out that door and ran the other way. Yeah. He could have came out that door and surrendered. He could have came out that door and just pointed the gun without shooting it and do what they call suicide by cop. Yeah, yeah. He tried to assassinate LAPD officers, and he's the father of one of them. That's what his mindset was. Yeah. Pure evil, man. A 68-year-old man with no arrest record mm -hmm. tried to murder LAPD officers. That's where his mindset was. So now the aftermath. So the FBI comes in because three of the operators were FBI agents. They fly. They're, they're shooting teams from Washington, D.C. They fly in, and that following weekend, they are done. They go home. All good. Legal shooting. Good they, shoot. Good shoot. Matter of fact, they take Jason and his family and the other officer, operator that got hit that was super brave to stand there and fire from his rifle after taking one in the wrist and shattering his wrist and making it useless. They fly those two guys and their families to Texas and present them with Medal of Valor. Okay, What does the Los Angeles Police Department do? Ten months later... They have 10 months to do this investigation, which is typical for shootings because they nitpick everything, start to finish. We go to the shooting review board. So now we're in our uniforms. We're on the 10th floor in the chief's office, and they, the force investigation puts on the presentation. And we knew we were on video. So now you have five deputy chiefs and commanders. I knew two of them very well. Okay. They were my academy classmates. I know their careers very well. They hadn't worked the field since 1993. They hadn't worked the field in over 20 years, 25 years. 
because they ran for cover for administrative jobs yeah. and just took promotional tests. <clears throat> the arrogance of these two individuals. Matter of fact, one of them, one of those guys, not only was he my academy a classmate, we shared an apartment together for a year. I was in his freaking wedding party. Yeah. I was a member of his wedding party. Mm. They're so arrogant, the pure arrogance of people that will criticize and critique you, money morning quarterback, if you will, that haven't done the work, weren't yeah. there, weren't facing evil. <clears throat> they had the luxury of looking at 30. So the shooting takes place in less than three seconds, start to finish. When the suspect comes out and coup de gras us and starts blasting to Jason's reaction, to his transition to his pistol, to the other operator coming around a corner and throwing rounds down at the suspect. They are, they're watching this on 4K video, 30 frames per, section, per second. They have the person from Force Investigation stop at the frame when the fifth and final shotgun blast is pushing the suspect backwards and the, the murder weapon, the revolver, is flying out of his hand. Right? That's Jason's fifth one. He drops his Benelli and transfers... Um, transitions to his 1911 two control pistol shots as the suspect's down. Yeah. There's a thing called tacky psyche lag time, if you will, where when you're in a stressful shooting like that, your mind can't catch up to what's going on. So if you're in a shooting and a suspect's got the gun, you, you see him or her still with that weapon. Yeah. And that's why you're shooting. Well, video may show that they've already dropped it, or in this case, it went flying out of his hand. Your mind isn't at that point. Mm -hmm. It's still at the point you're getting shot at. Well, the arrogance of these deputy chiefs, their findings were Jason's, when he transitions to his 1911, those two rounds out of policy. And the guy that rounded the corner after I pulled the one guy out of the firefight and he laid down fire, all of his rounds from his 45 he had a glock 45 out of policy when yet he did what he was trained the heroic thing to get back within the fight with your partner who's left out to dry they, they say all of your rounds are out of policy so, so it's mind-boggling yes so from there so there's four aspects to the way this kangaroo court works you have the shooting review board and that's what these findings were and i wanted to strangle these two classmates of mine that think they're holier than now as deputy chief positions, a bunch of cowards. We walk out of there, and now it goes, their, their findings goes to the chief of police. And the chief of police sees that several of the pistol rounds are out of policy. So he makes these deputy chiefs and commanders that form that opinion come in and explain. And the reason we know this is out of the four people or five people that are there, four are commanders and deputy chiefs from the department. The fifth is a peer member that's on our side representing us yeah. and saying, oh man, all, they were in a gun battle. So the chief of police makes one by one, all of them give their rationale. Oh, well, chief, the gun was already flying out of his hand. They didn't care about lag time. They didn't care about real world gun violence. Yeah. They, the chief says, no, these guys were in a gun battle 
I'm putting all rounds in policy, but I'm putting Chris's tactics and game plan out of policy. And I was all for that. I'm like, Roger that, man. All I care about is the rounds are in policy. Put my tactics out of policy if you don't like the way my game plan was. You're taking care of the boys as the as the OIC. Yeah. Yeah. But again, everybody was a part, you know, would have done the same. I'm not, nothing special. If, if the roles were reversed and one of the other guys was OIC, they would have done the same. Well, this is an, yeah, but this is a, an example of, of high level leadership, right? How, how to earn the trust of the, of, of your men and to lead men is, is about taking care of the men, right? It's a huge part of it. So, yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. And that's that how my mind works. So, the chief puts all the rounds back in policy, my tactical game plan out of policy. No big deal. Goes from there to the inspector general's office. Inspector general says, no, nah, I'm going to put those pistol rounds out of policy. So now you got three different decisions by three different, quote unquote, I mean, doing air quotes here, entities. Goes to the fourth and final one, the most important one, which is the police commission. And the police commission is a board of civilians, five members um, that make critical decisions for the way the department operates. And they did the right thing. They put all pistol rounds, all rounds in policy. And they put my tactics back out of policy. So <clears throat> me and three of the other guys get what's called a notice to correct from the chief's office. And I stopped reading after the first paragraph because there was so many mistakes. So whoever the aid writer, staff writer was for the chief of police, should be fired because he or she was an idiot and didn't even know the case because there were so many mistakes in that first paragraph um, that's like, did you even read the findings? So I stopped reading, but in a nutshell, it just said, it was a warning to me saying, if I ever make a tactical mistake again, uh, I'll be fired. Okay, roger that. And they did that, he did that, the chief did, to three of the other operators, including Jason. Okay, so Jason gets shot, gets the Medal of Valor by the FBI. And is, is deemed a good shoot. Yes, but, yeah. our, but our, our own department yeah. says, hey, if you do that, something like that again, we're going to fire you. And then they top it off and they send us to training, what's called LETAC, Law Enforcement Tactical Application, application Course. Basically, what that is is remediation. Remediation, that's what I was about to say. You got yeah. it. And we get there, and an old Metro partner of mine is a Sergeant 2 running that unit, that, that, that school, LETAC. And I walk in, and he's like, I can't believe it. You just cost me money. And I'm like, what? Because I had a bet with all the instructors. When I saw your name on the roster sheet here, I go, no way, Chris is coming here. Because one, we all know it was a great shooting. We know it was a great game plan because I reached out. We have two SWAT lieutenants I'm very close with. Yeah. And we, we have done many operations with them in concert with them. We use them at certain times for takedowns. And both of them said, Chris, you did it the right way. I won't even get into the what the chief of police said we should have done it. We would all got killed that day yeah. if we would have went by his uh, method. You know, His tactics, techniques, and procedures <laughs> from behind the desk, yeah, right? One, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I go, what are you talking about? He goes... I thought, no way in heck you're going to be here. Uh, it was a great shooting. This is uh, basically, people look at it as an embarrassment, like you messed up, it's a form of punishment, right? Yeah. And, and this is where mindset comes in. And usually it's for like weaker-minded or younger cops, I should say, or they're not, they're not developed yet, and they maybe have had an accidental discharge, or 
they had a use of force maybe with the baton or the taser that was out, deemed out of policy yeah, um, or excessive, and they get basically sent back for remediation. But like you said, it's like punishment. And there, he's like, Steve Ariano's like, I, I told all these instructors, no way Chris is going to be here. He's got a little over a year to go before he retired. I didn't have to show up. I did not have, just because they gave me training officers part of punishment, I could have just called in sick that week. You know, it's a five-day school. So I get there, I go, no, man, these three guys are here, I'm here. Mm-hmm. My brothers are here, I'm with them. So looking around at that morning, day one at Monday, and I'm seeing all these younger class. There's about 15 of us there, 20 of us, max. Officer, I don't know any of these younger patrol officers that are there that they're getting punished for whatever they did, right? Yeah. And I'm looking at them, and I could see their body language and their mindsets, and they're disgruntled. They, they have no desire to be there or they're embarrassed or whatever. Yeah. I turn to my three guys. I go, who ya, dudes? We're going to set the example here, man. We got, you know, me 30 years, most of you guys 25, 24 years on the job. Yeah. We're going to show these youngsters how you handle getting remediation. Wow, man. We took the, you're going to send me to tactical training? And shooting training for a week? Roger that. <laughs> We're going to have some fun with this. Son. So we fired up these youngsters. And we said, no, man, follow. We got, you got four broken down old detectives with a ton of experience. We're going to, yeah, any, any of us could have been disgruntled because everyone in the department knew about this yeah. shooting and this ambush. And they're like, we, we can't believe you guys got deemed tactics out of policy and you guys are getting punished for this. Like, nah, man, we're going to, we're going to show here. Let's mind, get some value mind, out of this. You got it. Yeah. We're not going to waste a day. So by day four, uh, George Ryan, he, he's the sergeant too, which is the highest ranking sergeant position there. He was in SWAT for many years. Great guy. So he's running. He's the overall OIC of, of LETAC class at the academy. It's in-service training. He comes up to me, and we're doing building searches now, right? And, you know, we're shooting some munitions. We had shot on the live range all morning. Now we're doing building clearance. And he comes up to me. He goes, Chris, come here. He goes, got a question for you. He goes, on tomorrow, the last day of training, the last block we have, it's called mindset. And normally we have someone come in and talk about getting your mind right. He goes, would you do me a favor and debrief? You mind talking about what you guys went through that day? I said, not only would I be glad to do it, I made a PowerPoint presentation and I gave it because my old captain that was working Van Nuys Division now at the time sent me an email, said, hey, Chris, Heard about that shooting? Would you mind talking about it? Because a year had passed, so now you could talk about it. And we're having a supervisor's training day. Said, Roger that. Unbeknownst to me, I get there. Not only is it the captain and the lieutenants from the patrol division and all the sergeants that work there, because it's a supervisor training day, deputy chiefs found out about it, and commanders found out about it, so they showed up. I'm not going to say anything that isn't true. Yeah. So... I said, hey, thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. This happened 365 days ago, so I can talk about it now. Everything I say here is exactly what happened, including the four different findings between the shooting review board, chief's office, inspector generals, and a police commission. And start to finish, I talked about the whole thing. And um, not one word came back to me. From those deputy chiefs, they, they couldn't go to the chief's office and say, hey, Chris is... He's giving PowerPoint presentations on this to the department, 
And they didn't like it though, did they? They didn't have a choice. It's the truth. It's yeah. the straight up truth. Yeah. So George Ryan, the sergeant two at Letac, says, "Man, you have a PowerPoint for this?" I go, "George, there's nothing on it that that's wrong." He goes, "Well, I need to review it first. I said, "Roger that," but I've given it to this deputy chief, this deputy chief, this commander. They were all present. Nothing I'm going to talk about isn't what happened and the findings and the, the the ridiculous decisions that came down on us yeah. on something that was, was heroic. Uh, and the FBI deemed it heroic. Yeah. But our own, our own agency is penalizing us for us. So I give it to the class on that last, last block on that last fr day, which is that Friday. And it had a huge impact on all those young cops. So much so that instructors came up to me and go, hey, man, you mind giving this every LETAC class? I know you're busy, busy running these operations. Will you give it? Give us absolutely. I'll definitely give it, you know, because I think it's got a lot of value. Yeah. Um, I've since passed that since I just retired, you know, a month and a half ago uh, to one of the other operators that was there that day. Okay. And they've continued giving that, and that's become part of the curriculum. But I, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but I, I talking about mindset, I, I, I skipped over a very important part. So two important parts. So I've had the unfortunate, you know, you know about being part of a team and being a leader. You have to make decisions, and sometimes that decision is booting people out of the unit. Yeah, yeah I, I've had to do that, and some of those guys were my friends. And it's not a fun feeling, but you have to separate personal and professional. This is about going home safely. In that environment especially, yeah. So, so a couple things. One, that shooting happened on a Tuesday. Three days prior, one of the operators had just bought in a home. He's married, four children, and he had a housewarming party. So three days prior to this incident, everybody was there because that's how close we are. So all the nine LAPD guys and wives, girlfriends, kids, whatever, and the three FBI agents were there. Everybody's there having a great time, barbecue in the backyard, all that. Not knowing three days later we were going to get ambushed and two guys were going to get shot. I ran that operation that day, and all I could think about was I would have had to gone to Jason's wife, Susie, and the other operator's beautiful wife. I'm not going to – I don't want to say names. Yeah, totally. Uh, but Jason gave me per permission on his end, and I would have had to beg for forgiveness that I got their husband shot. So a lot of things were dwelling on my mind because I put Jason in a position that he had originally had – the operator that we're having this housewarming party at, yeah, they're a different height stature. And all I can think of, if I hadn't done that, that bullet wouldn't have hit a surefire light. Yeah. Probably would have hit that operator in the throat or the face and killed him. So that was on, that, that hit me, that reality. Yeah. The order how I changed it. <clears throat> I talked to, to Jason about that. And he's like, there is nobody that convinced either one of us that God had angels over us that day. There is absolutely nobody that convinced either one of us that, that we didn't have a protector watching yeah. over us. The way things unfolded, again, Jason could have got killed that day, first round. The second operator that got hit in the wrist 
that could have hit him somewhere else, pierced his heart. Yeah, man. Dropped him. Four to six feet. I mean. And now now the third round couldn't have whizzed, maybe wouldn't have whizzed by our head. And it any different order of, of placement of operators, it could have been a completely dr- more dramatic outcome and devastating outcome with casualties on our end. Yeah. So I I give the guys a couple days break. You know, immediately you get in a shooting, they put the team off, go to the site doctor. I'm like, hey, I'm good, man. Roger that. You know, I was in charge that day. I was responsible for getting two guys shot, but I'm good. Get the clear to go back to work. But they wait a week or so before they let us resume normal operations. Well, that following weekend comes, and now I'm like, you know, we're ch- I'm checking on the guys, but we're all signed to home, right? And they're getting ready to bring us back. And... I reach out to Jason and, uh, you know, Mike, Mike's, we all vet, went and visited the guy that got shot in the wrist, uh, went to his house, um, you know, visited him a couple times. Uh, you know, he's all casted up from the multiple surgeries he's had to get. Uh, he's back full duty as an operator, worked through it. But, uh, you know, there was a question whether or not he was going to have full use of the hand. Yeah. Because he had a rifle with the vertical four stock. Yeah. So the round hit him and just shattered the wrist. And came out. Now, it may if he didn't have a vertical four stock and had it like this, it may have went right under and, and hit him. It just the way things lined up. Yep. By the grace of God, those guys, the first two shots didn't kill those guys. Um, so I wait and I reach out to you know I'm talking to to George Morales and again he was our scout and he missed the window. Yep. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Roger that. Roger that. I. I call up Jason. I said, Hey, I want to take you and Susie out to brunch. They live at a little beach community, um, in LA. I go, you want to meet, you know, you guys good now? Cause I wanted them to have the family time first. Yeah. Cause this was traumatic to everybody. He goes, Roger that Sunday morning's great brunch. Let's go down have a beer or two and, and hang out on the beach, you know, on this, uh, restaurant that has a patio overlooking the sand and stuff. I'm driving down to four Oh five. Uh, so this is, it happened on a Tuesday, this is Sunday, so what are we looking at, five days or so later, right? Still pretty fresh. Still fresh. Yeah. But I'm, I'm now, you know, this is the first time I'm going to see Jason, one of the guys, I, but I've been in phone text conversation with everybody. I'm driving down to 405, down towards where Jason, where I'm going to meet Jason and, and his lovely wife, Susie, and uh, my phone goes off and it's George Morales. I go, what's up, brother? He goes, hey man, I'm not doing good. I haven't slept all week. What's up, bro? He goes, I missed the window, man. I got you guys shot. I go, no, man. We were, we readjusted. There's a there's a, a multitude of issues that happened that day. Yeah, yeah you missed a, a window, but it's we're, we're humans doing a human operation. When humans are involved, there's going to be mistakes made at some point. Think about all the times we did it right. All the times you were spot on with your schematics and your recon. He goes, dude, I never saw the window. I can't sleep. This guy ambushed you guys, and and it's my fault. I go, no, man. That's like saying it's the guy that was third in line that racked the beanbag ground and yeah. made noise, and that same guy dropped a flashlight and made noise. No, man. We, we readjusted on that window. The third guy that racked around came through when I pulled the wounded officer out of the way. He stepped up, got his mind right. I go, things happen, we readjust. That's life. 
He goes, I, I can't sleep. I go, I'll tell you what, man. I'm on my way to meet Jason, Jason and Susie. You want to meet us at the beach? He goes, man, you mind if I meet with you guys? You got it. So this is guys that are telling the the psych doctor, hey, man, I'm good. I'm good. Which well, yeah. you, you are when they immediately tell you because you're still breathing. Yeah. But as the days go by, man, you start dwelling and some PTSD starts creeping in. Not, not to mention the doctor doesn't have your trust. It's not it's right. not part of your team. And not to mention, because of some societal parameters, you, you, you talk to that doc and you're potentially putting the rest of your career in jeopardy, man. Absolutely. You know, it's just, uh, look, it's just a fact, man. Yeah, yeah you, I get it, man. You, I'm going to tell this strange doctor, she's asking me questions. She's like, you're awful calm. I go, hey, man, this isn't the first rodeo, man. You know, so I'm good, man. We're good. I said, I was responsible for getting two operators shot, and, and I'll, I'll handle it. And that goes to, so George ends up meeting us, and we, we hang out for a couple hours, have a good brunch, and that helped with, you know, we talked, and Jason's like, hey, man, you didn't get a shot at. You missed the window, but when I came around the corner, I stopped and said, back up, back up, window, window. You know, yeah. he's whispering it. Um, we readjusted. Things happened. The suspect happened to go to that window, check on his room, come back, look, and he caught a glimpse. Whether We'll never know because he's dead, but he caught a glimpse. Whether it was a shadow of Jason standing there, caught a glimpse of his arm or saw the barrel, we'll never know. But we got made. We didn't know it. That's life. So <clears throat> getting back to how I was running a unit and I had to unfortunately remove some people that just made some critical errors before on other cases and it was a detriment to the team and it's always a group decision you know it's not like someone that's in charge is the king you know you reach out and you talk to other operators and they're coming to you going hey man this guy's not he's not up to the standard 100 percent, yeah and you know you got to take teammates considerations and the morale and you get rid of them get rid of them and you know i always tell them hey you know, I'll I'll go have a, a, a cup of coffee with you, lunch with you, dinner with you, anytime. You know, you come in with a handshake, you leave with a handshake. Two of those three guys never talked to me again. Hey, man, that's on you. I I feel bad that you're gonna hold it against me. Yeah. And not look in the mirror and say no, it was you. The other guy knew exactly why he was getting removed, and I have way more respect for that. So, <clears throat> when you're a leader, it's not a one way street. So I waited till all the hoopla was over. Not the nine months later, 10 months later with the shooting review. I meant like a week or two when they bring us back. Yeah. And immediately the, the captain wants to be there and do all these big debriefs and stuff. And there's yet all these people in these conference rooms that weren't there. That's not a true in-house debrief. So I waited a few days after all the people that weren't there but want to act like they were there or know better. Those debriefs were over. I called the unit into a debrief, the 12 of us. I said, hey, guys, you know the way I operate. I've gotten rid of people, um, and it works the same. I said, and I, I directed it to the two that got Jason and the other operator that I, I was responsible for getting shot. I go, hey, fellas, I got you two guys shot. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. I was the OIC that day. We got blasted at my game plan i put people in positions that may have compromised us again we'll never know because the suspect's dead so we can't 
debrief him. Yeah. I said, you tell me now, you know, would you change the way we did things that day? You let me know and I'll walk out this door. I'll give you guys a handshake. Someone else takes the reins. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, in the history of this unit, no one ever got shot. Plenty of shootings, but none of us ever got shot. Yeah. I got. I was the one that got. My game plan ultimately caused two people to get shot. There's always someone that's responsible for everybody. Yep. Right. So, both Jason and the other operator said, "No, boss." Even knowing what we know now, getting shot and the multiple surgeries for the other, he said, we wouldn't have done it any differently. We would have done it the same exact way, even knowing the outcome. I said, all right, roger that, because if you're not comfortable with me leading the show or still being a part of this high-speed unit, you let me know and I walk out the door. No hard feelings, and I'll just go back to one of the regular fugitive squad or I'll leave the division and just go be a table detective somewhere. You know, working domestic violence cases, whatever. Yeah. If you don't feel um, I'm, I'm up to being in this unit, if I don't live up to that standard, and they're like, no, no, we're good, we're good. So if if either one of them or anybody that day had a problem, I was out. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the way I believe a leader should work. It's not a one-way street. You know, we always, if I bring someone brand new in, um. And it doesn't have to be this unit. It can be any unit. And it could be any job. Anybody in a unit, whether it's a corporate office, whatever, should have input. Doesn't mean that input or their recommendations goes into the final outcome yeah. product. But I think you're foolish as a leader to not take into account, regardless of experience, listen to what everybody has to say. Agreed, 100%. And, and unfortunately, there's leaders... Like I know on on in this case that hadn't worked the field in 25 years, but they're going to preside over this like they know what a gun battle is um, and they have no clue. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a, a, an important learning curve for anyone listening that don't discount someone, you know, new. You know, I talked to you on that run today about how impressed I was with Noah. Yeah. You know, for such a young man to have such wisdom, that's impressive. But if you're, if again, it doesn't have to be three or seven project, doesn't have to be some corporation somewhere, Microsoft, doesn't have to be a police department. If you have someone younger on a team, doesn't mean they, can, they can't contribute. That's right. Listen to what That's they right. say, and they may end up having a great idea because they're looking at it from a completely fresh perspective. That new perspective, man. You're exactly right. I mean, it, this has helped shape tactics all throughout the SEAL teams, man. It's input from guys that come in that again they see these tactics these old tactics through a fresh set of eyes and um and that's the way we operate same way chris i mean there's so many things that that i think are composed in this single story um and of course they're all in complete alignment to what we teach our students i mean this is this is the found this is found and here's the thing you're not a leader if you're leading by force, right? You're a leader because you've instilled confidence in your teammates and then they have decided to follow you, right? That's what makes you a leader. And if you don't take ownership, which this is the thing, 
this ownership thing is preached. It's it's a big topic now. This ownership and, and it's it's a very important thing. But I think the caveat is it's much easier said than and done. done. Yeah. It's much easier talked about. But when you, Chris, are standing in front of your team saying, "Look, guys, it's a, you you let me know what you think. Do you still have confidence in my ability as your OIC? And if not, no hard feelings." I will step away, right? That is it, man. But that's hard to do, yeah. you know. But it is essential. I, I completely agree. It's essential. And, and and to me, there's two types of leaders. There's to me, a good leader is one that surrounds he or herself with top quality leaders. Yeah. You 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 know the other type of leadership where the leader brings in weaker people because they have an ego and they want to make sure that no one is as good as them. They want to shine, yeah. Yeah, they want to shine, and it should be the complete opposite. You should surround yourself with leaders that are better than you. Yep. That makes your job that much easier. That's it, brother. And then, you know, you tell the story of, you know, you coming up on comms after – this scenario goes down, and this is, is similar to I've seen this scenario play out in the SEAL platoons of of, of a, a leader coming over comms, just like you did that day, Chris, in nice, calm, clear, concise. You know what you're going to say. You know what needs to be said. You do it, and, and it saves the life, potentially, of your teammates that day. This is so important, such an important principle, to be able to control your emotions, right? Your emotions being the way you speak, the way you're breathing, not yelling, not getting, not being angry or freaked out when you're in that position, regardless of the circumstance. Right. That's the embodiment of that, man. And, you know, the, the other thing, you know, you talk about, man, you talk about what happened afterwards and how, you know, after it's been deemed a good shoot, these guys get the literally get the Medal of Valor for their actions that day, and then you still have to go and endure this harassment um, from from your from your department, right? And it, it just it, it this this quote has been stuck in my head for the last two weeks, but you were and are the shining example of what this quote is talking about. You were. That day and on many days, the man in the arena, right? That's what you were, right? And and here and the quote is, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause. You were doing that, Chris. Who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls behind the desk who neither know victory or defeat. I added a few words into that quote right there. I'm sorry, but your story, and specifically that part, reminds me of the man in the arena. 
which you were that day and on many other occasions. And just know that if you're in the arena, you're, you're going to have critics. Yeah. And you're going to have to stand in front of them at times and, uh, and take that, that type of harassment. That's part of being the man in the arena, right? Yeah, no, amen to that. And uh, I know that, that mantra or that quote very well. We all do. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a creed we've lived by. Um, not only in the unit, but throughout the police department, many of the high operators know that. Amazing. Um, you know, and, and speaking of critics, so one of the, one of the persons on that board, that shooting review board, uh, was a commander rank and generally it's deputy chiefs on there, but there was a vacant deputy chief uh, position because someone had just retired. So basically that commander was on there thinking, oh yeah, if I hammer these guys, I'll look good and I'm going to get the next deputy chief spot. And what happened? That person got the next promotion to deputy yeah, chief. Yeah, man. It's like, it's to me, it's, it's such an atrocity. It, it makes me wonder, you know, 10, 20 years from now, or even maybe sooner, how are we going to find men or women to do this job? How? Because, you know, there's only so much you can take. You talked about your, your teammate earlier. Actually, it, it physically, he had a, it literally had a stroke. Yes. Because of the physical stress that they were putting on him. Undo stress, mental stress that right. manifested itself physically. You know, it's like, this is why I said any man or woman who raises their hand to serve in that capacity has my respect. Because we don't see all that, man. And these stories need to be told because now, I hope you guys listening, when you look at, when you shake the hand of, when you see an officer in your own community, I hope after hearing this and hearing what men and women like Chris have not only done, but what they have been through unjustly, the things that they have to compensate for, the burden that they have to carry, I hope you will look at them in a new light. <laughs> this is why these stories need to be told, man. You know, it, it, I think I think it's key, brother. And uh, I mean, uh, there's there's another there's a whole nother podcast in you. We haven't even talked about the mountain. We we that that you oh. that you went you know and tried to summit and came back. We haven't talked about the things that you have had to overcome the things that you have had to manage and deal with in your personal life alongside your professional life and you got to come back for for another show at some point man yeah yeah yeah. i forgot about that yeah my my failure uh at attempting my first fourteen thousand yeah uh foot mountain peak and uh (laughs) i mean mindset that went into that and i immediately went back and i you know i talked about briefly about yeah, how I found out about the basic course after that, but uh, that and uh, yeah, I, we could talk about you know who Drew Carey is, the game show host. Yeah, um, uh, we he his ex fiance was murdered on Valentine's Day, uh, not this past one, but twenty twenty. Uh, we arrested that murder suspect twice, so there's two Holy stories about crap, that. Man. Uh, also arrested the. Uh, the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history, Samuel Little, uh, who professed, at the time we arrested him, he had 
was wanted for three murders in OA. And after trial and was convicted, he said, hey, I want to talk. And he confessed to 93 murders. The FBI has already confessed, uh, 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 determined, and was able to determine that 60 of them so far were true. So if you Google his name, Samuel Little, you'll see he's the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. And somehow me and George Morales arrested him. Unbelievable. So I don't know how, you know, and again with Drew Carey, I could tell stories, uh, but it was just purely being lucky enough to be brought in by George into this unit yeah. and, and the men and women that have worked there. Um, being in Los Angeles, you're working a unit like that. You're, you're apt to ultimately get high profile cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, if you ever want me back, well, we, yeah, no, we're gonna have you back because that's another thing that I, I don't, I, I, we haven't even. And here's the thing: I say we haven't touched it, but your testimony, Chris is a is a, um, a child of God. He is a follower of Jesus Christ, with a uh, with a very real and present faith. He has a presence about him. He 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 um he he has that. That's a part of him. And, and you know that's another thing that I want to unpack at some point is uh, is your purely your testimony, which we talked about some of your 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 mission that you just discussed is part of your testimony. Quite obviously, the the divine um, the divine protection that you credit to God that day and not losing your teammates, making the decisions that you made. That's a huge part of your testimony. I, I feel that. God was putting those decisions into me. Exactly. There, there's. It's because He lives in you. And and yeah. I don't care who you are, if whether you believe or not, or what your faith is. There is nobody that can convince me otherwise. I was there that day. Jason was there that day, and we said it at the same time. God had some angels looking over us that day. And I'm not here to say that three decades, over three decades of working, my entire career was the mean streets of L.A. I didn't take any Pogue admin positions. I worked the field, the streets, the entire yeah. career. Every shift, almost every assignment uh, there was to work. I Almost everyone I worked. And I'm not going to lie. When you work three decades with the lowest of society, lowest forms of society, the scum of society, um, and downright evil, I'm not going to sit here and act like everything was great. There was times... I would question my faith. That's what I'm, yeah, um, undoubtedly. And and we could talk about that at, at another time. Yeah. I'd gladly come back. I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the other aspect of you that I wanted, that I really want to unpack at some point because there's, there's Chris, the operator, right? And then there's Chris, the, the child of God, the human being, right? And that's, I want to unpack that, man, because I know that there's, there's a lot of strong, strong testimony. I think that's going to be able to help a lot of people um, that are at places in their faith that they're looking at the world around them, saying, "How? How, how can there? How? How can there be this loving God that loved me enough that He literally humbled Himself on a cross and died for me, so that He can reconcile me with Him?" 
that I can be in re- back in relate. Like how how does that exist when look at the world, man, and, and we just see snapshots of what's going on in the world. Chris has had to actually have a hands on this, right, and confront this evil face to face. So it's a whole nother level of of. Uh, I, I just would love to hear the stages of that and how now you are. Um, the man that you are right now sitting here in front of me, man. It's so, I mean, it just blows my socks off, dude. So we'll do that again on another episode. It's midnight. You're kidding me. It's midnight, man. It's way past my bedtime. <laughs> we, we do things late around here, son. <laughs> this is uh, this was a four-hour four hour long podcast. I think it's our first four-hour long conversation, and I wanted it to be this way because I knew – I knew it was going. It would take. It was going to take multiple episodes to unpack all, all your all your stuff, Chris. And so this is the way I wanted it, man. If you're if you're comfortable with it, we'll we'll cl- close it off right here. Absolutely. And then we'll pick it up on a uh, on another date. Without a doubt, uh, we're going to be seeing Chris and hopefully one day working with Chris um, within the body of Three Seven Project. And hopefully, a lot of you guys that are listening. We'll get to meet him face-to-face one day um, is my prayer and my desire. So uh, you've been such a huge part of, of uh, this this mission that we're on, Chris. You've been a huge part uh, of mine and Blake's lives. We, we talk, me, Blake, and Nathan talk about you on a regular basis. You're always in our mind, man. And I just can't thank you enough, brother. I really oh, can't. No, it's, again, honored and I'm, I'm truly humbled. Yeah. To be sitting here with y'all. Um, I I told you I, f- I found three of seven at a time in my life I needed to find it. Yeah. Uh, and you know we could talk about how, and then that that was about that failed attempt at the mountain. Yeah. And how uh, you know words my dad would always say to me um, that you know he spoke to me when I had that long drive home after yeah. failure and went back and that's when you know I connected with three of seven and. The timing was There's, right. That, that's yeah. that's another thing that that wasn't happenstance or coincidence. No, it was meant to be. Um, so no, I'm again honored, and I, I'd love to come back. Um, uh, hopefully by then, this uh, adverse reactions I've had to this vaccine. <laughs> again, I'm not here to tell anyone I'm anti-vaccine. Um, there was a specific reason I decided to get it, but you know, for almost two weeks now. 13 days I've been under the weather. So hopefully I didn't sound too congested and no, under the sound, weather. You but sounded uh, great, brother. Uh, I, uh, I'm hoping by the next time I see y'all, I feel 100%. Heck yeah, brother. And um, I'll attach this in the show notes, Chris, but where can people find you and follow you, brother? You know, I, I don't have any platforms, but uh, I did recently just uh, for retirement purposes to stay in contact with uh, people that are retired. It's an easier way. I... I got convinced to or was convinced to join both Instagram and uh, Facebook. It's just my name. So if you Google my name or not Google my name, you know, Facebook, my name or Instagram it. Yeah. You'll see me. Um, you know, I, I'm not, All right, I'm going to attach them in the show notes. I'm going to attach Chris's Instagram handle in the show notes. I have a feeling one day he'll probably have a website. He'll probably have a book. Um, uh, oh yeah. no, don't, don't shake your head. Oh, that's son. another thing we didn't talk about. When I retired, what happened? Remember I told you on the run about the phone call I got? Ambulance? Oh, yeah, yeah. We forgot. He's also a movie star. Chris is also a movie star. We Look. Y'all better, y'all better look. Quit. We're going to 
I'm an I'm an extra in the movie. Yeah, just so right, you know. Son. I'm an extra. They had to bump he was in the movie so much they had to bump his pay up, son. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, man. Well, we we uh well we there's too many other things that, that um we had to talk about on this one. So well, we got a lot of other things to share with you guys. So thanks for joining in, Chris. We love you, brother. Love you. Thank, Thank you for you. pouring into uh to this podcast and, and everybody that listens. Um we're gonna go get some rest, guys. Hope you're uh hope you're not up at midnight listening to this. Listen to this um when you're fully awake and you can take the value that needs to, that you need to get out of this. So uh, love you guys. Three seven podcast. Enough said. Enough said. Hey guys, I want to take a second to tell you about a company that supports Three of Seven Project in a big way. It is Shea Butler Knives. Shea Butler Knives. So we have uh, worked with Shea for quite a while now. Shea handcrafts some of the finest knives on earth. Uh, and yeah, he supports 3F7 Project with his talents, with his products in a big way. He's he's our personal friend. And we just want to shout him out. If you guys are looking for a literally an heirloom quality knife that's going to last you not only for your lifetime, but for generation something that can be handed down go and check shay out and place an order with him um because he's got the knife that you need you guys know me i am a knife snob i actually appreciate a a good handmade knife more than i do a fancy gun uh because they're just works of art man and shay's the person to go to handmade blades Based in the Midwest, uh, check them out at SheaButlerKnives.com, S-H-A-Y-B-U-T-L-E-R-K-N-I-V-E-S.com. Check them out on Instagram at SheaButlerKnives. He's got everything from fixed blade knives to multiple types of folding knives, um, hunting knives, bushcraft knives. He's got, if you, he's got one something for whatever you need to do. Um, so... Thank you, Shay, for supporting 307 Project. Thank you for making such an amazing product. We really appreciate you, brother. Enough said.